The Bible reading is from 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 to 10, and then 17 to 19. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. And now verse 17. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. This is the word of the Lord. Friends, it would be great if you could keep that passage open in your Bibles. Uh, in the little outline, the pamphlet this morning, there's an outline there where you're welcome to take notes if that's helpful to you. Would you join me now as we pray for God's blessing on our time in his word? Our gracious Father, as we come to your word now, please let our hearts be encouraged that being knit together in love, we might reach all the, the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of your mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In his name we pray. Amen. Now, there is an economic principle that's been observed for hundreds of years that's known as Gresham's Law. I'm sure if there are any economics students here, you can come and correct me, set me straight a little later. My understanding of economics is poor at best, but Gresham's Law states simply that Bad money drives out good money. Now, what do we mean by good money? Well, in Gresham's law, good money is usually coinage where the metal value in the coin is, is valued at close to or more than the face value of the coin. So imagine a gold $1 coin. On the other hand, bad money in Gresham's Law is money where the metal value in the coin is far below the face value of the coin. So think about maybe a copper $1 coin. And Gresham's Law means that if both good gold $1 coins and bad copper $1 coins are both in circulation at the same time, what people will tend to do is they'll tend to hang on to the good gold coins and just use the I guess, cheaper, bad coins for everyday transactions. And what happens after a while is that the good coins slowly disappear from circulation as people hang on to them. 
And in this way, the bad money drives out the good money. Uh, I understand the same principle has been observed in the used car market. Uh, and it's also been observed with um, as we tend to use uh, electronic payment methods more than real cash. The, the, the cheaper, the at least perceived cheaper payment methods of just, you know, pinging an FPOS machine with your phone has tended to drive out the, uh, you know, the, the good money, the actual cash that we use for transactions. Now, <clears throat> I don't want to talk to you today about economic principles and how much metals are actually worth. Gresham's law, though, does raise the idea of whether money can actually be good or bad. Uh, good or bad, not on a value level, but actually on a moral level. If I asked you, is money good or bad, I wonder what you'd say. I suspect, though, we'd hear two voices in our heads, and they'd each be trying to talk over the other. Because there is a voice that we hear which says that, yes, money is good. Money is very good. And having it is very good. It's a voice that we've heard since we were young. I remember as a child watching Disney's DuckTales, and if you remember it, you remember Scrooge McDuck was happiest when he was doing the backstroke in the huge piles of gold coins that he kept in his vaults. The other voice we hear, though, is we suppose the voice of Scripture that says money is the root of all evil, which the sharp-eyed among you would have noticed is actually a misquote of verse 10 of today's reading. This is the voice that maybe admires those in Christian history who took vows of poverty, or who left the certainty of their next meal to go out onto the mission fields. They are the real Christians, we might imagine. Or this is the voice that says, you know, I know I need money to live, but deep down, I really like having money more than not having it, and we, need, we feel the need to have a sort of Christian negativity towards it. And so we just end up avoid talking, we avoid talking about it at all costs. Or it might also be the voice that says that having money is a sign of God's blessing and not having money means that God is very unhappy with me for something I've done. And I think these conflicting voices, they conspire to make us feel very uncomfortable when a sermon series on gospel-shaped generosity starts talking about money. I suspect it's the confusion about the nature of money, though. It's this confusion about the goodness or badness of money, which makes it so awkward to talk about it in the context of Christian discipleship. But you know what? The Bible knows no such awkwardness. Jesus talks about money frequently. He talks about it easily. And sometimes he uses it to illustrate a point. Sometimes he uses it as the point. It's the same here in 1 Timothy chapter 6. And it's because the Bible actually treats money as neither good nor bad. In the Bible, money is just a resource or as one author says, a tool of convenience to exchange work and goods between us. <clears throat> Excuse me. Another way to think about money is in terms of its potential, potential energy. It has stored energy, a bit like the fuel in your car or the battery in your car, depending on which way you, you go on that. Um, on its own, it's actually doing nothing. It's neither good nor bad. It's just a thing. But when it's put to work, that's when things start happening. And this is where we're faced with both opportunities and with dangers. Because while money itself has no moral quality, it still has the potential to impact our hearts in a variety of ways. 
sometimes for better, sometimes for worse. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. So we're in Paul's first letter to Timothy. We're in the final chapter of the letter. Timothy was a young pastor in the city of Ephesus. It's the same place the letter to the Ephesians was sent. And Paul writes to young Timothy here with fatherly concern across the whole letter because he wants Timothy to lead well by guarding the gospel in the church that he cares for. Now, the the passages we're covering today, they're part of a much larger argument, but in both of these subsections, Paul zooms in on the theme of money and on why a right attitude to money is actually crucial to guarding the gospel. So we'll look at today's uh, passage, or for the two subsections really, under two headings. The first being contented containing, uh, from verse 6 to 10. What you need to know is, though, as we get into verse 6 of our, um, our first subsection today, Paul's been addressing the issue of false teachers uh, through the beginning of chapter 6, and particularly how they were using their ministry to chase wealth. Now, it's fascinating to know how a departure from the truth of the gospel frequently tends towards greed. It's like opposite poles of a magnet where you can't be attracted to the gospel and to money at the same time, which shouldn't surprise us, really. It's exactly what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. Sadly, though, this image of the person using their ministry to chase money is not unfamiliar to us. Uh, Just a few weeks ago, an American church pastor by the name of Bishop Lamar Whitehead was robbed at gunpoint in the middle of a Sunday service in New York. Um, You might have seen the news story, and let me say, I've had friends who've been robbed at gunpoint during their church services. I don't wish it to happen to anybody. It must be terrifying. But in Whitehead's case, it's reported that $400,000 worth of jewelry was stolen from his person as he stood preaching in front of his church. When questions were understandably raised about his lifestyle and the lucrative target he was presenting, uh, his reported response was to say, I'm going to wear my Gucci because God says you are my chosen vessel. Now, I can't know what's actually going on between, um, between Whitehead and God at that point, but at least to me it sounds suspiciously like what Paul is talking about here in verse 5, saying of these false or heterodox teachers that they imagine that godliness is a means of gain. Godliness being a means of gain. So notice then in verse 6 how carefully Paul sets the truth against the lie. Uh, as, As John Calvin says, in an elegant manner and with an ironical correction. Verse 6, But godliness with contentment is great gain. Notice the contrast there. Imagining that godliness is a means of gain, but godliness with contentment is great gain. Now we need to unpack this. Here the Bible actually changes the camera lens a little bit, gives us a wide-angle lens, because this is something we all need to hear, not just people in ministry. Because rather than godliness or devotion to God being a means of gain, which can also mean profits, and there's a play on words here, godliness with contentment is great gain. 
And the Greek word for great that's used here is the word mega, which is translated in English as mega, which means mega, you know? In other words, godliness as a means to profit is just the product of someone's messed up imagination. But godliness with contentment is a means to mega gain. In other words, it's, it's really, really worth it. Put another way, Paul's urging his readers not to get their sums wrong. Godliness does not equal gain. But godliness plus contentment equals gain to the power of 10 multiplied. What makes the difference? It's that simple word contentment. If I had to ask you today, are you content? What would you say? Are you truly happy with what you have? Are you satisfied with what God has graciously and generously given you? Or do you want more? Well, the Bible explains this idea of contentment in the next two verses. Please have a look with me from verse 6 again. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. Now, here Paul zooms out to a vantage point over the whole of human life between birth and death. And it's, it's so far out that things that we think are major events in life, things like birthdays and weddings and graduations and retirement parties... They're almost invisible from this distance. When we're born, we arrive with nothing. No capital, a net zero balance. We're not even born with clothes. And when we die, we take nothing. It's all left behind. You know, we're going to arrive at the gates of heaven and kind of pat our pockets. And, oh, my wallet's not here. In respect of earthly possessions... Our entry and our exit are identical. So our life on earth is a brief pilgrimage between two moments of nakedness. Notes one writer. So with that in mind, what do we actually need for our brief pilgrimage? Well, not very much as it turns out. Paul's mentioned the essentials. Food, which undoubtedly includes water as well to feed and strengthen our bodies and clothing to cover our bodies for modesty and to protect us from the elements. And the word here can actually mean shelter more generally as well, so uh, homes, houses, something to live in. This is the basic list of human needs that appears in all sorts of places, not just the Bible. The only one missing is air, but that one God provides free of charge. And if we have these things, we can be content, says God. Now, it's, it's worth adding here, the Bible's not suggesting vows of poverty uh, as a means to greater godliness. That's not what this is about at all. So uh, John Stott, the 20th century English Bible teacher, said, the poverty he's writing about is not destitution, which is destructive of humanness, but a simplicity of lifestyle which is entirely compatible with human dignity. I like that, a simplicity of lifestyle which is entirely compatible with human dignity. Of course, it does raise the question of whether it's wrong to have more than just the basic human needs. I suspect most of us in this room probably have more than just food and clothing. 
Of course, it's not wrong. And we'll, in verse 17, when we get there, we'll see that it's assumed that many Christians will be rich in this present age. The issue at stake, though, is what we desire. Again, it's important to be clear about the idea of desire because it's not wrong either to have goals and to have even aspirations. They're not wrong in and of themselves necessarily. It's not wrong to want to make money. The question is, why do you want to make money? So consider the language of verse 9. Right at the beginning, that word but sets this desire in contrast to the contentment Paul has encouraged in verse 8. This desire is actually rooted in discontentment. And then consider the related words he uses in verse 10. He talks about the love of money and this craving. What we're really talking about is greed. This is about a hard attitude which is convicted and convinced that more money will make me happier. Understand there was a study conducted a few years ago that that actually tops out at a certain point. It's surprisingly low. I forget what the number is. But after a certain level of income, uh, the law of diminishing returns actually sets in and you don't get happier, you get more unhappy. Surprisingly, the Bible agrees. The trend isn't upwards, it's downwards. A desire for, to be rich for its own sake leads, firstly to verse 9, into temptation. Because if we desire money, the highest goal in our life, we'll be tempted to do almost anything to get it and to live as though that is our God. Just to use an obvious contemporary example, if I want more money than I have now, I might be tempted to take what God has generously provided me with and gamble it on a scratch card or on the pokies or on those myriad of sports betting apps that keep coming up during the things I want to watch on TV. And we do that in the hope that just a a little bit can get me more. And it doesn't have to be gambling. It could just be a side hustle that causes you to compromise your responsibilities as a husband or a wife or a father or a mother or a friend or causes you to put yourself in a compromising situation just for the sake of having a few extra dollars. It might also just be your attitude towards others where if your goal is to get more money, You might see others just as a means of getting there rather than people who you should serve, but you see them as people who should serve you and your aims. The Bible says this then leads to a snare, to a trap. Once you're in, you can't get out. And the momentum builds as the sin feeds on itself into many harmful and sinful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Excuse me. And the image here is actually of someone drowning. Why? Because, verse 10, not money itself, because remember, money is just a thing. It's neither good nor evil. But the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. The love of money is like a kaleidoscope of sin. In verse 10, Paul offers his personal observations, uh, the effects of of a love of money that he's actually seen 
in Christian brothers and sisters. He, he's seen people who, because of their lust for money, have actually given up on Jesus. As they, they define their life by their pursuit of wealth, rather than godliness, they stop coming to church, they stop going to their Bible study, stop talking to their Christian friends, because there was not a moment to waste if it could be used for making money. The conversations they wanted to have were not about how they could serve Jesus better, it was how they could uh, get a better angle on the market. And, you know, this sadly makes sense, because Jesus said, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other, because you cannot serve God and money. Paul's also seen how they've pierced themselves with many pangs. What does that mean? Well, it just describes a very deep and painful regret of those who've given themselves over to the worship of wealth, but who've been let down by their wealth and have been left with nothing. They actually have less than what they had at the start. It's an ugly and awful picture of where greed leads. And again, money itself is not the problem. Our own hearts are the problem. And this is a good reminder that no amount of greed is safe. It's not like there's a threshold where there's, you know, there's a level that we can kind of handle in our lives. It's not safe because we see the momentum building starts with temptation, ends with ruin and destruction. It has the potential to wreck our lives now and in the future. So, what can we do about it? Well, we've actually already covered the answer. It's there in verse 9. Be content. Be content with the simple good things that God has given you. Anything more than that? Well, it's a bonus. Now, I've got to say that contentment isn't just a feeling. It's actually something we do. That's why Paul says we will be content now, not we will feel content. Sometimes we don't feel content because we're not trying to be content. Contentment's about being deliberately thankful for everything that God has given us. You might, when you pray, maybe make a list to yourself of all the things that God has given you. It's again, it's that old Sunday school song, count your blessings, name them one by one, and it will surprise you what the Lord has done. It's also about considering carefully what we want and what we need to enjoy a balance between one's desires and their fulfillment, as one writer puts it. A contented person is very careful before signing up for a new loan or a new credit card or a mortgage. And a contented person will bravely withstand the incredulous stares of the broker when you don't want to max out your borrowing power. A contented person doesn't shop the sales uh, or scroll marketplace or Gumtree just to find a bargain. You know, I was thinking of that image of the guy in the movie The Castle, you know, for the trading post. Dad, what's a pulpit? You know, because who cares what it is? If it's a bargain, I'll buy it. A contented person doesn't do that. They avoid impulse buying or just trying to find a bargain. They consider what they need first, and they try to find, find it for the best price. A contented person doesn't feel the compulsion to always have the latest phone or the latest shoes or the latest car, but is content to hang on to things a little bit longer if they still do the job. And a contented person, of course, treats advertising with a healthy skepticism. Because you might not need that thing that they tell you that you do need. Here's a way to think about what the Bible is saying here. If money is like the energy in a nuclear reactor, 
a stored energy that's got the capacity to bend our hearts towards evil and sin. Well, contentment is like a big lead dome, like the thing that they've got over Chernobyl, to contain the potential for our money to generate evil in our lives. Contentment, very useful at containing the energy of money to generate evil in our lives. So that's our first heading. Contented container. I'm going to flip over to verse 17 now. Because we might actually be content. We might be actively containing the dangerous stored energy of money to generate a sinful desire of more. And the reason for that might be simply because we actually feel we have enough. We have more than enough. And you know, by virtue of living on the Sunshine Coast in Australia in 2022, most of us would probably fit into the category of what the Bible calls in verse 17, the rich in this present age. And in fact, I looked up a website where you could do the maths, and if you earn the current median Australian income of about $51,000 last year, you would still be in the richest 3.3% of the global population. Here's a thought. However much you might feel about cost of living and your ability to meet it, the truth is we are actually the rich in this present age. And we might feel content that we have enough because we really do. But God's word still has more to say to us. Now, in this little subsection, verse 17 to 19, Paul draws a neat but significant contrast between this present age in verse 17 and the future, verse 19. And here there's an opportunity for future treasure which outshines present riches. Of course, the the treasure in verse 19 Paul's talking about isn't material treasure. It's spiritual benefit that we might use our wealth to attain. It's our own godliness and assurance and the spread of the gospel to others. This is future treasure that goes beyond maturing investments, beyond retirement plans. And the language of foundation is all about where I'm building for the long term, or in this case, the eternal term. But here the Bible says that there is a way to be rich in the present age, but have no treasure for the future. How can we be rich now with no treasure for the future? Well, have a read with me from verse 17, and let me suggest a way to read the section which guarantees that outcome of having treasure now and no treasure in the future. As for the rich in this present age, charge them to be proud to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, not on God, because money richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They must not risk doing good, but rather be economical in good works, be stingy and ready to save. I'm sure the point is obvious. But there's also a way in which we can be rich in this present age, and store up treasure for the future. The way to live with present wealth is to keep our hope firmly fixed on the future that we already have in the Lord Jesus Christ. So look with me again at verse 17. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty or proud, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. 
putting our hope in God rather than our money actually frees us to put our money to work for the sake of our future treasure because we'll no longer fear having less of it. Uh, This was graphically brought home to me this week. Uh, Friday morning, got back in my car and uh, turned the key and nothing happened because I knew my battery had had it. I've been putting off getting it sorted out. Um, And, you know, the Lord provided some super helpful people to get me back on the road, get me a new battery. But I'll admit that when I heard the the beep on the FPOS machine as I paid for my new battery, it stung a little. And it wasn't because I couldn't afford it. It was actually just because some of my money was gone. I couldn't get it back. And it was spent on something far from exciting. But, you know, my sermon prep was ruminating in my head, as it does, and it made me realize what was going on. And I realized that what was happening there, that heart feeling, was telling me that I was trusting too much in having money. Because, indeed, what it, what it actually happened was that the Lord had been graciously providing me all this time with the, the money I needed to pay for that battery when it finally, you know, left this world. All I needed to do was be content. And at the sound of that beep, go, thank you, Lord. She provided me what I need to get me back on the road. I can get home. Be thankful that he looked after me and provided for me and just keep trusting him to richly provide everything I need to enjoy. Verse 17. Perhaps more importantly, I can do this because this present age will one day give way to the future where I already know that I will get to take hold of that which is truly life. So remember back in verse 7, for we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of the world. So with that in mind, why not put the temporary resource of our money to work wisely now? doing good, being rich in good works, being generous and ready to share. In fact, it's only good for this life anyway. Heaven doesn't accept it as currency. You've just got to think of all the archaeological sites around the world, tombs of great kings. What's common in all of them is these treasures that are in the tomb that were left there for, for the afterlife. And all that's left there is a decaying corpse and a whole bunch of treasures because they never went to the afterlife. What a waste. Think of Jesus' parable in Luke 16 about the shrewd manager. Jesus concluded that parable by saying, I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. And the picture there is, you know, of using our wealth for the sake of the gospel, so that when we finally get to heaven and our wealth has failed, there'll be people there who go, Welcome to heaven. I'm here because you spent some money so that I could hear the gospel. And so if contentment is what contains the energy uh, in money to, to generate evil in our hearts, future hope is like completing an electrical circuit with a power source so that future hope releases the potential for our money to generate eternal treasure. Now, many of us like to use a, a banking app on our phone uh, to track our transactions. You know, we, when the money 
comes in, like when we get paid, we, we see it and we feel good, smiles. Uh, and then when the money goes out, like those direct debits for our bills, we feel sad. And the chuckles probably mean every, everyone knows what I mean. But I was thinking, you know, imagine if we had an app where we didn't just see the transactions in our bank accounts, but we actually got to see the transactions behind the transactions. And by that I mean the eternal transactions that are going on as we use our money here and now. So yes, beep that $10 that I spent on coffee for a friend and myself. What's the eternal transaction going on when I sat with them and I encouraged them to look to Christ as they struggled? What if we saw that transaction in green with a little plus sign next to it? That direct debit that goes off every fortnight or whatever to our ministries at Grace or to the mission organization you give to. Imagine if you could see each person who came to Christ as a result of that giving. Little, little name, green, little plus sign next to it. Every person who grew closer to Jesus as a result of that giving to the church. Maybe on the other side, you know, that, that under-the-table cash job that you're not going to declare on your taxes? But that one comes up in red with a minus sign next to it to remind you that you're not setting your hope on God who provides you with everything richly to enjoy. I don't know, any, any web developers or app developers want to talk to me about organizing that afterwards? We can, we can have a chat. It's fun to dream, but I really do think Paul's trying to get us to see beyond just income and expenses in this present age. To see what's going on in the future as we use our money now. And I certainly don't mean at all that we can buy our way into heaven. The Lord Jesus Christ paid our way there because we could never afford what it cost him. But how might we make eternal investments that spring from our hope in God and a desire for future treasure over present wealth? How might we make our our gospel-shaped lifestyle the thing that our income needs to submit to rather than our lifestyle submitting to our income? Because the money in our wallets or bank accounts is neither good nor bad. It's just a thing. A thing that God has given us to be used for his glory. But the money we're blessed with has incredible stored energy. And that energy may be released as evil or it may be released as good as it impacts our own hearts. Contentment will contain the potential for our money to generate sin. But future hope in God will release the potential of our money to generate future treasure. Amen. I'm going to finish with a prayer this morning that I found in a fantastic little book. This little book called Money Counts by Graham Bynan. We'll make sure this ends up in the library in due course. But at the end of this book, he records a prayer by a 17th century Christian called Samuel Hiram. Uh, And I'd like to pray this prayer with you. Sometimes it's useful to pray prayers that others have thought hard and long about. And maybe you can make this your prayer today as we close. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, our hearts are loaded with much corruption. And although riches be in themselves a blessing, yet without your special grace, they will be to me a cause of many evils. They bring me to lift up my heart, to pride myself in my own conceit, to trust in my wealth, 
to despise others, to grow in love with this present world, to become cold and remiss in the best services, and to conclude that I'm highly in your favor because you have enriched me. Lord God, these are the diseases which through the poison of our nature do rise by these outward possessions. Neither can I say that my heart is clean from these corruptions. Please purge them out of me, I ask you, by the fiery power of your spirit. Give me poverty of spirit and humility of mind amidst this outward prosperity which you've given me. Make me remember that the more I have, the greater shall be my account and the harder for me to be saved. By this may my wealth be so far from puffing me up with secure presumption but rather move me to work out my salvation with fear and trembling. Please cause me to think often of the words of my Savior, that riches are deceitful and of a thorny nature, choking the good seed of the word and making it unfruitful. May I so learn to carefully handle them and to use them with great care and circumspection, lest I should by them wound my conscience and be pierced with many pangs. Please do not let my eyes be dazzled or my heart bewitched with the glory and sweetness of these worldly treasures which may be taken from me, or I from them, even in a twinkling of an eye. Draw my affections to the love of those durable riches and to the fruit of heavenly wisdom which is better than gold and the revenues of which surpass the silver. Do this so that my chief care may be to have a soul enriched and furnished with your grace, filled with the knowledge of your will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. And because, Lord, in having much, I am but a steward for you and a disposer of your gifts, please enlarge my affection towards others. Make me rich and fruitful in good works, being a father to the poor and causing the heart of the widow to rejoice, warming the heart of the naked with the fleece of my sheep not eating my meals alone, but dealing my bread to the hungry and never hiding myself from my own family. Why should I make gold my hope? Why should I strive to laden myself with this thick clay still plotting to set my nest on high when all that I have or can have is in a moment turned into vanity? Please make me alive, therefore, to good duties. The hearts of your people may be comforted by me. So, Lord, shall I, by your goodness, have the true sense of your blessings, together with a daily increase of much cause for thanksgiving, for your great goodness to me, though vile and unworthy as I am. All this for Christ, and in his most glorious name, to whom with you and your spirit, one true, everlasting, and only wise God, be all praise, power, might, majesty, and dominion, now and forever. Amen.